Now, it's our desire today to put down a foundation for the book of Numbers, first of all. This book can be, I think, called the book of arithmetic of the Old Testament, or of the Bible, for that matter. It's called Arithmoi in the Septuagint, and that means arithmetic. We get our book Numbers from that. The theme of this book, however, I call it Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan thought of the name before I did, however, and I've plagiarized his name for the book of Numbers. Here you have the walking, the wandering, the working, the warring, the witnessing, and the worshiping of the pilgrim, God's pilgrim in this world. It's a handbook for pilgrims. Chart and compass come from thee. And here it is. This book is helpful for us today. It's a road map for the wilderness of this world, and the lessons the children of Israel had to learn are lessons that you and I will have to learn. And that's the way God intended for it to be for you and me. The thing that the New Testament says, "...for whatsoever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope." That's Romans 15:4, And then in 1 Corinthians 10:11, Now all these things happen unto them for examples. They are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. And then in Hebrews 11:13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And then in 1 Peter 2:11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And then finally in John 17, beginning at verse 14, and this is our Lord's great high priestly prayer, I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil one. Now, we come here to this book of Numbers, which is the fourth book of the Pentateuch, the fourth book that Moses wrote. We saw last time Leviticus and Actually, we haven't come anywhere since Leviticus because they're still camped at Mount Sinai. And we find in the first book of the Old Testament of the Pentateuch in Genesis, we have the creation and the fall in the beginning. And the children of Israel were then in the loins of Abraham. And then we come to the book of Exodus, and it's the great book of redemption, and they went down into Egypt. But Exodus is the way out of Egypt. In the brick kilns of Egypt is where we find them, and God delivers them out of that. And in the book of Leviticus, we have the book of worship and fellowship, and God spoke to them out of the tabernacle, Vayikrach, and he called unto them. Now we come to this book, and it's a book of Pilgrim's Progress. And it gets its name of numbers from the census that we have here in chapter 1, and then another census over in chapter 26. 
and we might as well at this point make a comparison of the two. And it reveals the tragedy of these people in the wilderness. In chapter 1 here, verse 46, we read that there were 603,550, and these were of the fighting men, that is, those in the army. And in the 26th chapter, verse 51, there were 601,730. In other words, there were 1,820 less. Now, God had said to them, "...be fruitful and multiply." But they are losing instead of gaining in the wilderness. Their walking had been turned to wandering, and they didn't advance an inch. We find that when you come to the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers, where are they? Well, they are at Kadesh, Barnea. Well, that's where they refused to go in the land. And after 40 years in the wilderness, they're back there at Kadesh, Barnea. They just haven't been anywhere. It's like riding a merry-go-round. You get off where you got on. Uh, 150 to 200 miles from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Eleven days' journey. That's about what it was. And they spent 30 days at Kibroth. In other words, they spent 40 years on a journey which should have taken them 40 days. And what was it that slowed them down? Well, the thing that slowed them down was unbelief. It's revealed that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And we'll see that as we go along. Now, we probably should attempt to ascertain the number that had come out of Egypt now. We are in a book that deals with numbers. We are told here that in round figures there were 600,000 fighting men. And I'm giving you now the estimate of Dr. Melvin Grove Kyle. I was in his class. He was a great Egyptologist and editor of the ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and at one time editor of the National Geographic. A man who was a great archaeologist and a great man, but he was as dull and dead as any man possibly could be in his lectures, but he sure could give you a wealth of information if you'd listen to him. And that always made it intensely interesting to me. Now, we have here 600,000 fighting men, and Dr. Kyle said that approximately 400,000 women. Then there were 200,000 older men, senior citizens, and there would be approximately 800,000 children. And then there was a mixed multitude that followed. They were about 100,000, and that gives you an estimate of 2,100,000. And that does not include the tribe of Levi. And these are the ones who came out of the land of Egypt. I personally think it would probably be nearer 3 million than 2 million, but no one can argue about it because... We do not have exact figures. The best figures that we have are here. Now, that tells us something about this book. And there are other things that we'd like to say concerning it, but we'll pick up those great truths as we go along. Now, we have here, and I probably should take a moment to say a word concerning this, I do hope that you have our notes and outlines for the book of Numbers. I have in it two charts, 
that are invaluable in the study. One chart is of the tabernacle and the way the children of Israel camped around the tabernacle. Now, if you think for one moment that they were a mob just going through the wilderness, helter-skelter, harem-scarum, you're wrong because no group ever marched as orderly as they did. And we'll see that in this first ten chapters here, in fact, from chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 10, you have the order of the camp. And I'm sure you'll be impressed by the way that God insisted upon the order of this camp. And you'll recall that Paul said to the believers in Corinth, let everything be done decently and in order. Everything that God does, he wants done in order. He wants that done, and that's the way he does things. Have you ever looked at a rose, looked down deep into it, pulled its petals aside, and taken a look? My, I tell you, he sure put that together nicely, didn't he? Ever notice a tree? He does a very good job in making a tree and any piece of fruit that you want to pick up. In fact, this universe that we're in is very orderly. There'd be a lot of things bumping together if it wasn't orderly. However, there's plenty of space to maneuver, and the Lord has it so arranged that it maneuvers without bumping into each other. You and I are in a remarkable universe that reveals that we have a God of power, and He's a God of order, and He is a person. And that is something that's quite wonderful. In fact, nobody but a fool could be an atheist. That's what the Scripture says. The fool had said in his heart, there is no God. And a friend of mine back east years ago, he's gone to be with the Lord now, very successful in dealing with atheists. He overheard a man one time say he didn't believe in God. And so he said to that man, he said, Sir, I'd just like to ask you a question you made a statement that you did not believe in God. Now, he said, I want to ask you, were you sincere in making that statement? Because he said, I have to infer that when a man says there is no God, either he is being insincere or else he's a fool. He's insane. Now, which he said, is it? And the man looked at him in amazement. He said, well, I'm no fool. Then he says, you must have been insincere in making a statement like that. You really didn't mean it. And this universe is telling it out too strong. The order of the universe, the power of this tremendous universe, reveals that there is back of it not only a person, but he's a genius, by the way, and he's God. Now, will you notice, we have here in the first chapter the first census, and it's of those that are able to go to war. And by the way, the second chart that I have is the way they marched on the wilderness march. And I have that also in a chart, and I hope you have that before you, because I'll be referring to that from time to time. Now, that brings us, therefore, here to this first chapter. And we have here, and if you'll notice this, the census is being taken. And the Lord spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of the congregation on the first day of the second month in the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt. Now, we are told here that he spoke to them in the wilderness. 
but also it was in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was in the wilderness. Now, the church today is in the world. We're told that. I read a scripture to you that tells us that story. The Lord Jesus said, I pray not that ye take them out of the world, but that ye keep them in the world. We are in the world. But also, he speaks here in the tabernacle. Now, will you notice what he says here concerning the church in Ephesians 2, 19? Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, the church today is building of God in the world. We are his workmanship, his poema, his poem. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works. We're in the world. Now, not only that, we are told here, "...take ye the sum of all the children of Israel after their families by the house of their fathers with the number of their names, every male by their poles." from twenty years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Now, the children of Israel are to be numbered, and they're to be numbered, a census made, for the purpose of building up an army, and an army is for warfare. You see, as slaves in the land of Egypt, God fought for them. They were not asked to fight. Now they are out in the wilderness, and they are to fight their enemies. And they have enemies. And may I say that you and I, as believers in the world, we have enemies also. And these enemies are quite real, by the way. And again, if I may refer back to the epistle to the Ephesians, we're told there's something about the warfare that the believers engaged in today in this world. Over in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, listen to verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, he saved us by his infinite, marvelous, wonderful grace. But you and I are in a world today, and it's a wicked world, and it's a rough world. And like the children of Israel out in the wilderness, this world is a wilderness as far as God is concerned, and sin is in the world. And God saves us by his marvelous grace. But then we're told that we have a fight and we have an enemy. And Paul said to a young preacher in Second Timothy 2, 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he said again, Fight the good fight of faith. Now, for the first time, these people will hear of wars. And we will. In this book, we'll hear of wars and there'll be trumpets and battles and giants, all of that. You and I live in a world today where there's that going on. be honest with you, I get rather amused at this little crowd of folk that 
today, there's supposed many of them to be college students, and they're so limited in their vision, so limited in their scope and breadth of their knowledge. What do they teach them today in college, I wonder? Certainly not the same thing they taught us in college. We were told something about this big bad world that we live in. Why, they think all you got to do is just say peace, and you can just have peace. They talk about making love, not war. My friend, the interesting thing is the biggest strife that's going on today is taking place not among young people that are in the service today wearing a uniform. It's taking place among this bearded crowd. They are the ones that are causing a great deal of the dissension and the trouble today. And yet they're talking about peace. They know nothing about peace at all. And they do not recognize that which is fundamental. They live in a pretty big, bad world. And there's some bad folks around us. And we need to recognize we're going to fight whether we like it or not. And that's the terrible thing about it. Now, I want to read verse 4. And with you there shall be a man of every tribe, every one head of the house of his father. Now, the reading of this book, and certainly the way it starts off here at this census, well, it's not as thrilling as a mystery story, let's say. You can enjoy one of Hitchcock's plays on television more, maybe, than this. But you have here 54 verses of unnecessary details, and they may be quite boring. But you know, it was important to God, and if we'll just recognize some great truths that are here, it ought to be thrilling for us. First of all, God's interested in individuals. Mass movements, I think, have their place, and certainly not rugged individualism. But you know, God's interested in redeemed individuals. God's interested in every individual. And Moses and Aaron was to take a census, and they were to have one assistant from each tribe, and you'll find out names of these men that were assistants that are given here. And if you think I'm going down through that list of names, you're wrong. To begin with, they're not easy to pronounce. But it reveals that every name there was important to God. And I just lift out one verse for you, and all these names mean something. And if you get to the Hebrew meaning of the names, you'll have a wonderful message. Now I'm reading verse 5. These are the names of the men that shall stand with you of the tribe of Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadur. Now, isn't that interesting or isn't that thrilling to you, friends? Well, Reuben, he was the eldest son and he was set aside. Back in Genesis 49, 3 and 4, we were told he's unstable as water. And that was true of him. But he's going to pick out a man that's a little different to help. And the man that's picked out is Eliezer, the son of Shadur. Eliezer is, my God is a rock. And Shadur, the Almighty is a fire. And I like that. This man, Eliezer, and my God is a rock. He may belong to a tribe that's unstable as water, but this fellow knew if you got upon a rock, why, it's like the little Scotch lady said, I may tremble on the rock, but the rock never trembles under me. And he found out that there is a rock. And they had sung that song of Moses 
that God was their rock. And he makes a shadow in a weary land. He also is a foundation for us to rest on. And you may be an unstable person, but friends, it'd be just wonderful indeed to have one like that here. In verse 18, we're told, "...they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month, and they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names from twenty years old and upward by their poles." Now, why the pedigrees? There's a threefold purpose in that. There was an immediate and direct value. Now, God has Moses take a census of the men that are able to go to war, because now they're going to have to fight their battles. Now, we find that those that were listed had to be those that were of the nation Israel. They had to declare their pedigrees. They are beneficial. You know, it's well to know your ancestors. And a great many people take personal pride in that. I was rather amazed to find out how small the Mayflower was when I saw a replica of it in New York. And in Boston, too, I guess it was, too. And, you know, that's not a very big boat. I had assumed it must be as big as the Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, or one of these great ocean-going vessels for the very simple reason that so many people got ancestors that came over on the Mayflower. Well, a great many people are very proud of their ancestors. I had a cousin that loved to dig back in the family history, and my one day at a family gathering, he was telling everyone about the family. I asked him the question, I said, have you found any horse thieves in the family? And he was insulted, actually. He felt like I'd insulted him by mentioning that. And I have a notion that in my family, and your family too, we went far enough back, we'd find some rascals. Most of us have got rascals in the family. We only remember the good boys and the good girls. There are others back there. But a genealogy is interesting for that matter. I got a letter some time ago from a concern. They wanted to trace my ancestry, and they said that they thought I'd be delighted to know it. And I said, well, I'm just perfectly willing to forget about it and go on from here, forgetting those things which are behind. And most of us do well to do just that relative to that. But the genealogies are important in Scripture. Now, the second reason is some are recorded and others omitted. And the reason is obvious. They lead to Jesus Christ. We saw in Genesis the rejected line was given first, then it was dropped and forgotten. And then the line that's leading to the Lord Jesus is given, and it's followed all the way through. Now, the third reason is God forbade intermarriage. They had to be able to declare their pedigree as true Israelites. They were beneficiaries of the covenant to Abraham. And you'll recall that in the days of Nehemiah that there were some in the priesthood who couldn't declare their genealogy. And I want to tell you, they got washed out. In fact, the matter is, they were put out because they couldn't declare their genealogy. It was very important, therefore, for an Israelite to be able to declare his genealogy. In fact, if he couldn't declare his genealogy, he was put out. Over in the seventh chapter of the book of Nehemiah, I'd like to read there a statement that's quite interesting. It's in the 64th verse, Nehemiah 7, 64, it says, 
these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. So there were certain Levites couldn't declare their genealogy, and they were put out of the priesthood. And actually, the New Testament opens with the genealogy, and it stands or falls on the accuracy of that genealogy. It was on display or on record in the temple of that day. It could have been checked, and probably the enemy checked it many times to see if he couldn't find a fault in it. But that was the genealogy, as you can see, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this has a great message for us today. Could you imagine an Israelite at this time? A young man's called up, and they ask him, Are you an Israelite? And he says, Well, I hope I'm an Israelite, but I can't be sure until I die. What do you think would have happened? They would have pushed him aside. And then suppose that another young man stepped up, and they said, Are you an Israelite? And he'd say, well, I try to be an Israelite. I'm working at it, and I hope I'm going to become an Israelite. What do you think they would have done with him? It was very important for them to declare that they were an Israelite, a son of Abraham. That was very important. And I have a question for you today. It's a rather personal question. Can you declare your pedigree as a Christian? Well, somebody said, well, I didn't know whether I could or not. Absolutely, you better be able to declare your pedigree, my friend. Listen to John in 1 John 3, 2. Now are we the sons of God. (laughs) Now are we the sons of God. Can you say that, friends? And how do you become a son of God? Galatians 3, 26. Ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You become a son of God by faith. In Christ, there's no other way. To as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, the authority to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more or less than just simply believe in his name. And then again, Galatians 3.29, And if ye are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then again in Romans 8.14 and 16, For as many... As are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. I believe that you can know it. I want to say to you, you can be born again by the blood of Christ and be in the family of God. And that's the only way. And in the wilderness journey today, you must know, my friend, who you are. You must know whether you're a child of God. And if you're not sure of that, you ought to make sure of that. And you can make sure of that. Somebody says, how can you make sure? You take God at his word. If you trust Christ, then you take God at his word. And he says that you're his son by trusting. Now are we the sons of God? Are you a son of God? You are if you've trusted Christ and you can believe God. You can rest on his word. It's what he says, not what you think, by the way. And it was pretty important to be in the army of Israel. You had to declare a pedigree. You wouldn't be able to fight. You wouldn't be able to stand. You wouldn't be able to do anything. You know, there's a shield on the walls of West Point. It's blank. And that shield is the shield of Benedict Arnold. He's the man without a country. A lot of Christians like that today, at least they profess to be Christians. 
But I tell you, they can't write down on that shield their name and say, I am a son of God through faith in Christ. We must know that we are the children of God in the family of God and in the household of faith. You know, there's a lot of spiritual amnesia today. A Christian must and ought to know that he's a child of God. Oh, my friend, how important that is. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. 1 John 5:12. This is important scripture. Paul could say, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's very important. Now, we have given here something that you'll need an adding machine if you go through this in a great deal of detail, which I am not. I said at the beginning there'd be certain scriptures we'd pass over. Now, this is some that I'm going to pass over. We're given here the twelve tribes of Israel and the numbers that were in each tribe. Verse 21, the tribe of Reuben were forty and six thousand five hundred. Verse 23, the tribe of Simeon, fifty and nine thousand and three hundred. Now, you can go down through the list and you can come out at the very end of the chapter, not the very end, but close to the end, verse 46. It says, even all they that were numbered were 603,550. And you get your ad machine, add them up, and you'll find out that it comes out just this way. And it's quite accurate, by the way. You can take my word for that. Now, you'll notice that the Levites were not numbered. Verse 47, "...but the Levites, after the tribe of their fathers, were not numbered among them. For the Lord had spoken unto Moses, saying, Only thou shalt not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel." Now, they were not taken here, but later on you'll find out that they were taken and were kept separate. And they had a separate function, by the way. And verse 50, it says, "...but thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony." and over the vessels thereof, and over all things that belong to it. They shall bear the tabernacle, and all the vessels thereof, and they shall minister unto it, and shall encamp round about the tabernacle. Now, the tribe of Levi had full charge of the tabernacle, and they would put it up of an evening when they came into camp. They'd take it down in the morning when they were ready to march. We're going to see that just a little later on. And when the tabernacle setteth forward, this is verse 51, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. This again, the outsider was to be kept out. Now, verse 52, "...and the children of Israel shall pitch their tents every man by his camp." and every man by his own standard throughout their host. Now, what about these standards? In chapter 1, we had the census. They had to know who they were, but they must also know where they belong. That is, 
You must first of all know you are a child of God, and then you must know where you belong. As a child, you must know. You must know your pedigree to know that your place in the camp. You couldn't go to war unless you did. Now, we'll see that in chapter 2, but these standards. Now, these were banners that were put up over them, and just what were on those banners. Let me read you a statement that comes from two great scholars, Kyle and Dalich, in their commentary on the Pentateuch, make this statement, and I'm quoting them now. Neither the Mosaic law nor the Old Testament generally gives us any intimation as to the form or character of the standard, the Degel. According to rabbinical tradition, the standard of Judah bore the figure of a lion, that of Reuben the likeness of a man or of a man's head, that of Ephraim the figure of the ox, and that of Dan the figure of an eagle, so that the four living creatures united in the cherubic forms described by Ezekiel were represented upon these four standards. I don't want you to make too much of that, because there are those today that even go so far as to find in their arrangement about the camp the way the stars are arranged in heaven, the signs of the zodiac, if you please. And a great deal has been made of that. In fact, the matter is there are those that find the Gospels written in the stars and that their future may be written in the stars. I always think of what Shakespeare had Brutus say, it's not in our stars but in ourselves that we are underlings. I think it was Mark Antony said that to Brutus, by the way. Doesn't make any difference who said it. It's a good statement. Our problem is with ourselves, not up yonder with the stars at all. And you'd not know this, and we can't be sure that this is accurate, actually. I think tradition, reasonably so, but don't try to make too much of it. After all, you don't find the gospel in the stars. You find it in the Word of God. It's not necessary to have that. And without the Word of God, you'd never suspect it was up there. There are those that say that, well, they were without excuse. How were they without excuse? That they had the gospel preached to them? They did not. His eternal power and Godhead is revealed in this creation. But they don't tell you anything, friends, other than that. They don't tell you about that. So let's not make too much of this in these days in which we're living. Now, if you'll notice, the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, and this is chapter 2 now, verse 1, "...every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch." Now, they all camped in reference to the tabernacle. The tabernacle would come into camp, and then the children of Israel would camp around it. And these standards were put up whatever they were. And on the east side was Judah. Judah led on the wilderness march. That's verse 3. And then you find that under Judah, why certain ones were under that same standard, Issachar and Zebulun. And if it were a lion, I think it was, why they all knew where they belonged. And then we find to the south it was Reuben, and that was the badge of a man, and Simeon and Gad camped there. So every tribe knew where they belonged. We find that Dan and Asher and Naphtali was up at the north. They 
camped there. And bringing up the rear in the west was Ephraim, the ox, and Manasseh and Benjamin camped there. So that you have the children of Israel camping in an orderly way. And each family in each tribe knew where he belonged in that tribe. So there was never any problem uh, along that line. And all around the camp. So in chapter 2, we not only have the fact of their genealogy, they must not only know who they are, they must know where they belong. They must know their pedigree to know their place in the camp. And they could not go to war unless they were sure of their salvation. And Christian warfare is not carried on in the realm of doubts and fears, but in the clear light of a sure salvation. And our enemies today are the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they'll overcome you if you're not sure of your salvation. But every man is to rally around his banner. And I hope you have my notes, because I have all of this and charted out, and you can just follow me along in this Bible study by looking at the chart as we go along. And may I make application of that for us today? Every individual had his place. And it was God-appointed. And in the church today, all service is Spirit-directed. We're told that by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. And when you're put in the body, you're put in as a member. Paul says, as the body has many members, so is Christ, that is the church. So that today, when he puts you in the body, why, he puts you in to serve. Every believer has a gift. We've kept silent on this too long. Every believer has a gift. You have a gift. And it is the exercise of that gift that's Christian service. Well, I'm told that there are 20-some-odd bones down in your foot. Just think of the gifts there must be in the church. Many members, but one body. And the Spirit is overruling all. All of us are not to speak in tongues, even if that were the gift today. All of us are not. After all, all of the body is not tongue. Well, I've met a few people that are exceptions to that. They look like they were all tongue. But frankly, there are many gifts, and there are just literally thousands of gifts. And you are to exercise a gift. And I believe someday God rewards His own by the exercise of that gift. You and I are to... Find out the gift we have. We don't need to seek gifts. I do believe that we can pray and covet the best gifts. I'd love to tell you a story if I had time of how when I heard Dr. Ironside, I asked God to let me teach like he taught. And God heard and answered my prayer in such a wonderful way. Now, don't misunderstand me. I can't teach like he did. But God has permitted me to have a teaching ministry which I wanted. I asked him for it. I think that we're to covet earnestly the best gifts. But this is all under the sovereign control of the Holy Spirit. And friends, you ought to find your place in the camp. Are you in the church occupying an office that you can't fill and it belongs to someone else? We ought to encourage each member of our church, though, to find his place. My friend, you have a gift, and God wants you to exercise it. And don't try to do somebody else's job. Just do what God's called you to do. Now, as we come today to the third chapter of the book of Numbers, we can see that God's preparing the children of Israel for the wilderness march. And first of all, there must be the order of the camp. And we've seen that there was a census. 
that the men of war might be chosen, and that they might know who they were and be able to say that they were a son of Abraham. And then the standards and the order of the camp, so they had to know where they belong. And now we also see what they are to do. And we take here the tribe of Levi in the third chapter. The tribe of Levi is considered here. And I want you to notice as we look at the census and standards here that pertain to this particular tribe that had the oversight of the tabernacle. I'm reading now at verse 1, chapter 3 of Numbers. These also are the generations of Aaron and Moses in the day that the Lord spoke with Moses in Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the priests which were anointed, whom he consecrated to minister in the priest's office. And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. And Eleazar and Ithamar ministered in the priest's office in the sight of Aaron, their father. So that what we have is the record that is now confirmed that was given in the book of Leviticus that Nadab and Abihu were destroyed because they intruded into the high priest's office, which they should not have done. We're given then first the family of Aaron and of Moses. Now the tribe of Levi is given to Aaron. Will you notice that? And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. Now the tribe of Levi was given to the great high priest, to Aaron, to assist him. And you and I as believers in the church and a priesthood of believers, we've been given to our great high priest. Listen to him in his priestly prayer. He mentions that. In John 17, verse 6, he says, "...I have manifested thy name unto the man which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word." You notice that the church has been given to the Lord Jesus. The believers have. And then again in verse 9, "...I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine." And so we have been given as a love gift from the Father to the Son. And some of us may feel like he didn't get very much, but it's not what we are, it's what he's going to make out of us. That's important. Now you are given here the three families of Levi. We find again in the ninth verse here, "...thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron." And then again in verse 13, "...because all the firstborn of mine, for on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, mine shall they be, I am the Lord." And you know that that was the way that God put it back there. And today I think that he asks of each family that we give him not only our possession, but we give him a member of our household. Have you dedicated your own to the Lord? 
turn them over to him. It's a wonderful thing to do, be able to dedicate your own. You remember the rule in England years ago, they reversed it the way God had given it. The firstborn son, I think, went into government. And the second-born son went into the Navy. I think the third one went into the Army. And if there was a fourth, he always went into the church. That's the way they did it back in those days. The firstborn belongs to the Lord. That doesn't mean he was to go into the ministry, but he was to be redeemed, by the way. And the firstborn belonged to God. But instead of taking the firstborn from each tribe... God had them numbered, and he took the tribe of Levi. Now you find a family, as we've indicated, these three families of Levi. There were three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now you'll notice in verse 14, "...and the Lord spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying..." And this is in the wilderness now. This is for the wilderness march. "...number the children of Levi after the house of their..." fathers by their families, every male from a month old and upward shalt thou number them. And these would be the three families. Verse 17, these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And you find that the numbers are given here. You go down through the list and you find that they are given by number. And the families of the Gershonites shall pitch behind the tabernacle westward. And the chief of the house of the father Gershonites shall be Eliasaph, the son of Lael. And these are the sons now of Gershon. And then you have the order in the hosts. You have Gershon, Kohath, and Merari given their genealogy. Then the thing that they were to do. Now, Gershon, and by the way, his name means stranger or an exile, speaks of that wilderness march, does it not? And his assignment on the wilderness march was to take care of the coverings. Notice this, and the charge of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle of the congregation shall be the tabernacle and the tent, the covering thereof, and the hanging for the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. That was their assignment. Then we have in verse 27, and of Kohath. And then we're told the number that were there. And their assignment, their charge, shall be the ark and the table and the lampstand. The Kohathites had charge of the articles of furniture. And then in verse 33, we have Merari. Merari means bitterness. It speaks of that wilderness march also. And he carried the boards and the bars and the pillars and the sockets and the vessels. He had the heavy articles of furniture to carry. Now, the total of the Levites and of the firstborn of Israel are given to us next year. And we have in verse 39, and I'd like to read that. It says, "...all that were numbered of the Levites, which Moses and Aaron numbered at the commandment of the Lord..." Throughout their families, all the males from a month old and upward were twenty and two thousand. And then verse 40, And the Lord said unto Moses, Number all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. And we find that number is given in verse 43, 
22,273. Actually, we are given 22,300. And there's a slight discrepancy there of about 27. And here again, why the critic immediately begins to leap at it. Well, here's an error in the Bible. No error at all. After all, evidently the family of the high priest was counted in this and of Moses and they are included in it, and that explains the discrepancy. When the first counting was made, they were included. In the second one, which had to do with all the children of Israel, why they were naturally left out of that. That, I think, gives us a pretty good understanding. Now, that's what these people were to do, by the way. Then you have in chapter 4 the service of the Levites. These three families had this service to perform. And who is to serve? It says in verse 1, chapter 4, "...and the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi after their families by the house of their fathers, from thirty years old and upward, even until fifty years old." all that entered to the host to do the work in the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, from 30 to 50, they were to serve. That was the prime of life for them, and they were to serve. Now, we're told, as you move down into this section here, "...and when Aaron," verse 15, "...and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary," as the camp is to set forward. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, this was the order on the wilderness march. And we are told here, verse 20, "...but they shall not go in to see when the holy things are covered, lest they die." In other words, the only ones who ever saw the articles that belonged in the Holy of Holies was Aaron and his sons. They were the only ones, and that was the ark and the mercy seat that covered it. Then you have the order of the service of these others, Merari carrying these heavy articles, the pillars and the boards and the bars. And then we find that the Kohathites, they had their assignment, which was the articles of furniture. And then Gershon, he took the curtains and coverings and cords. And you'd think he had the easiest job, but I don't think it was easiest, but it was certainly easier than Marare as far as the articles were concerned. Now, there's a glorious message given to us here concerning these that are serving the service of the Levites. In the service, Koath came first as he carried the articles of furniture. Now, I'd like for you to note how they moved out on the wilderness march, and we'll see that more particularly when we come to the silver trumpet a little bit later on. And I don't want to be too tedious here, but I'd like for you to notice how they moved out on the wilderness march. The tabernacle was set up. That's the picture that's given to us here. What happened? Well, Moses and Aaron, they came out of the tabernacle of a morning, and they didn't talk it over. And Moses didn't say, well, 
Let's have a meeting of the board of elders, of the board of deacons, and let's find out whether we should march today or not. They didn't depend on that type of thing. They watched to see if the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, if it lifted from off the tabernacle. Now, if it lifted, it meant that they were to march. If it did not lift, it meant that they were to stay in the camp that day. So all Moses and Aaron had to do was to just watch, and they were to follow the leading that the Spirit of God gave them, for that pillar of cloud represents the Spirit of God. And the child of God should be led like that, not visibly, but we should be led by the Spirit of God. As many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God, and the Spirit of God wants to lead the sons of God. Now, when the pillar lifted, then immediately Aaron and his sons went in, and they went first to the veil. And as you probably know, before the veil, back in the Holy of Holies, was the ark and the mercy seat. Now, I think I mentioned this when we were in Leviticus, that I believe that the ark and the mercy seat were put up against the veil, not against the back wall, and that when they went in, they turned around, and they did face to the east, and they took the blood and put it on the mercy seat. But this day, while they went up and they took the veil and they let it down, it was held up there by the rings and the tashes, and it was let down, and they dropped it down over the mercy seat, and also over the ark. Then they wrapped it up. And then when they had wrapped that up, they put further linen cloth around it. It had several different coverings. And finally, they put around it the outside cover of the tabernacle. Then when that was concluded and the other vessels were wrapped up, then the Kohathites came in. And when they came in, there were staves that were in these articles of furniture, and they picked them up. And then they moved out. Those that carried the ark, the priests that carried it, they went way out in front and waited for the pillar of cloud was there. And then the tribe of Judah came on. Then the articles of furniture came. And we're going to see that seven times the trumpet was blown to get them on the wilderness march. Now the evening when they came to camp, it was a thrilling sort of thing to see them come into camp. Every man knew what he was to do. Every man carrying his particular part of the tabernacle. And when he carried that particular article all during the day and the evening, the first thing that happened was that the ark was put down. And the whole camp was arranged according to that. Then those members of the family of Levite, the Kohathites, carrying the other articles of furniture, put them down then the tabernacle was just set up around them. In other words, the furniture was put in first. Now, you don't ordinarily build a house like that today. But after all, this was a mobile home, and it moved, and they put the furniture down, then they put the tabernacle around it, as it were. And each man had his assignment. I'm of the opinion that that went up in a hurry, and I mean in a hurry. I think that in 15 minutes after they came to rest, when that ark was put down, that the tabernacle was already in place. You say you don't mean that, do you? I certainly do mean it. Let me explain to you and illustrate this. 
In my first pastorate in Nashville, Tennessee, I was single, and I always spent a great deal of time with my young officers. Some of them were married, some were not, and so we just had a gay old time at night. And when the circus would come to town, we would go to some home, and we would have coffee and sandwiches. Then we would go out to the railroad yards where the circus came in, and it would roll in about 2 o'clock in the morning. It's always interesting to watch that. When that circus rolled in, all you could hear would be the animals maybe letting out their cry, but not a sound. And when they would put it in on the sidetrack, there would be that slight rumble of the cars. And the minute that it came to a standstill, out from under those wagons and from the cages, a whole army of men would come out. And that had not been stopped five minutes until they were rolling the wagons off of the flat cars. They were unloading the circus, and they were moving it out to the circus grounds. Now, that to us was always an interesting experience to be there at 2 o'clock in the morning. When all the circus had been unloaded, and they were moving it out to the circus grounds, while we'd get in our car and go out. And to watch that parade was much more interesting to me than the circus parade itself with all of its fanfare and show and noise and calliopes. So we went out to the grounds. By that time, they had put up the cook tent, and many of the roustabouts were in there having their coffee and breakfast. The big top was just going up, and the crew that put it up they were busy, and the minute they got it up, and it didn't take them long, while they came in for their coffee, the other crowd went out, began to put in the seats, began to put in the rings that were used for the circus, hang the trapeze, everything was put into place. I want to tell you, friends, it was quite a show. And by 10 o'clock, everything was in order, and they were ready to do business, and then they had to get ready for the parade, and by noon... The parade had moved out. That, to me, was interesting. And I used to tell these young folks when we'd do that, we'd spend the whole night, and these fellas would take off work the next day, and I did too, and so we just had a big time. And I would tell them, I said, I'm of the opinion that's the way that it was done when the children of Israel came into camp. I said, when they came into camp, the tribe of Levi... The Kohathites brought in the articles of furniture, put them down. And the minute they put them down, that tabernacle started going up because Merari came in with the boards and the bars, and he put up his part, and then Gershon put up his part, put the coverings over, and then it was the great high priest that would remove the veil and hang that, and the Holy of Holies was not entered by anyone except the great high priest as he put everything into place there. My, what a thrill it must have been to watch Israel come into camp. That was one of the greatest thrills, I think, that you could possibly have, to have been there. And after 40 years of practice, they got pretty good at it. Now, each man had an assignment. And this is what I meant the other day when I said, that every Christian has a gift and you have a job God wants you to do. And I believe God's going to reward you for doing what he wants you to do, not doing what you want to do 
are doing what you think that you'd like to do, but exercising the gift that he gave you. Now, suppose the fellow that carried that tent pin on the northwest corner of the tabernacle. Suppose that fellow, he got weary of the job, and one day they are driving in the pens, and he said, I'm pretty tired of this. I've For 20 years now, I've been carrying that tent pen. All I do is to come here of a morning, and when they loosen it up, I pull it out of the ground, I put it on my shoulder, I take it over to my family, and we put it on the wagon, and here we start out. And you know, to be honest with you, I'm pretty tired of it. Nobody seems to recognize how hard I work. Nobody seems to want to reward me for what I do. And Moses never called me up and given me a medal. He's never recognized me before the congregation. And I'm getting pretty tired of it. I think I'm going to quit carrying it. And he said that the others had heard him complain before, and they paid no more attention to it. But the next morning, when they were all there, he was there. But when he started to pull that tent pin out, it was unusually difficult to get it out. They'd loosened it up, but that ground was hard down under that sand. And so he grunted, and finally he was disgusted. He said, well, nobody paying attention anyway. After all, my job's not very important. All I do is carry a tent pin. So I think that what I'll do, I'll leave it today. I'm not going to fool with it anymore. Suppose he left that tent pen. When they came into camp the next evening and everything's in order, all of a sudden somebody says, where so-and-so carries a tent pen at the northwest corner? And they can't locate him. Finally, Moses comes up and he says, find him. And they find him and bring him in to Moses. Moses said, where's the tent pen? He said, well, I left it back where we camped last night. Well, he says, why'd you leave it there? Well, he said, I didn't think my job was very important. Moses said, your job is so important that, frankly, this tabernacle, we can't put it up. You're going to have to sit there all night holding that cord because you should have been carrying that tent pin today. That tent pin's very important. You couldn't all put the tabernacle up without it. Now, who's to determine, friends, in God's service today, who does the most important thing? You see, that man for 20 years had been faithful. Then all of a sudden... He just went haywire, and notice what happened. How many children of God today do not think their service is important? The thing he's going to reward you for, friends, not the amount of work you've done, but whether you are faithful doing that which he's called you to do. And if you're carrying that tent pin at the northwest corner, don't forget to carry it. Today it's going to be pretty important, let me tell you. Friends, we come to the fifth chapter of the book of Numbers. Now, you may not think that this is a very interesting book, and I hope by now that maybe some have changed your minds concerning it, that actually there's some very interesting material in it, and also a very pertinent message for us in these days. Now, up to this point in the book of Numbers, we have seen the orderly arrangement of the camp which was a preparation for the wilderness march. There had to be this preparation. And these are the things that a Christian should recognize are needful for him as he, as a pilgrim, goes through this world. Everything and everyone in the place of the wilderness, for the walk, for the work, for the war, and the worship. 
and you and I live in a wilderness today. Now, there's something else that needed to be done. There is the cleansing of the camp, restitution and jealousy offering. And we come now to the cleansing of the camp. And we need to recognize the reason for that is that you and I are serving a holy God. Now, listen to the way this chapter begins. I begin reading at verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and every one that hath an issue and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall ye put out. Without the camp shall ye put them, that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. Now, they were to put the leper out of the camp. That may seem to you cruel at the very beginning, but there was a very definite reason for it. There was the danger of contamination, of the transmission of disease, And we find also that God says that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. We need to recognize that if we're going to walk with God, if we're going to fellowship with him, that there must be a cleansing of our lives. Friends, God's not going to walk with you as a sinner. I heard the other day of a preacher that died and that he was an alcoholic. May I say to you that all of the talk about how he was a blessing and all that, I discount it. I don't think God is a fool, friends. And God is not blessing, nor will he walk with those that are living in conscious sin. Our God is a consuming fire, the Scripture says. And again, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of his saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are round about him. And I believe that today that a great deal of the problems and difficulties and sickness and heartache is caused because Christians will not deal with the sin that's in their lives. And in our churches today, we're shutting our eyes to a great deal of it. And there are certain ones that had to be put out of the camp. Now, later on, when we get to the book of Joshua, we'll find out that they couldn't get a victory at Ai because of Achan. And this man Achan had sinned, and he covered it up. And that had to be brought out. It had to be dealt with. And God commanded to put out of the camp certain ones. And it wasn't done by those who thought they were superior or had some spiritual prerogatives that they wanted to assert. Now, certain persons were excluded. First of all, the leper. And we need to recognize that leprosy was a type of sin. We saw that in the book of Leviticus. There was the outburst from within. It was an issue in the body. And that speaks of the flesh. Sins of the flesh must be dealt with. I believe that today that there are more preachers more church officers, Sunday school teachers, choir leaders, and singers, that if they deal with the sins of the flesh, that we probably could have revival today. Sins of the flesh. God, my friend, is not blessing until that sin is dealt with. That's sins of the flesh. 
Now we are told here that a man, if he is defiled by the dead, the world is the place of death. You and I live in a world in which death is the deepest mark that's on this world today. That's the seal of a sin-cursed earth. God pronounced the judgment upon a sin-cursed earth is the fact that death has come, and that came through man's sin. The world, and that again, the sins of the world must be dealt with. And we're going to see that when we get to the next chapter. Then we have here, "...the Lord spake unto Moses, saying..." Now I'm reading verse 6. "...speak unto the children of Israel, when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit, to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add thereunto the fifth part." And I think that was what Zacchaeus was offering to do. Remember, he said, if I've taken anything by false accusation, I will restore him fourfold. He was actually going farther than the Mosaic law required him to go. Now, he talks here about the restitution that must be made. A restitution had to be made. And that's what we were reading about here. And repentance, therefore, is more than saying, I'm sorry. You see, a relationship between God and the individual can't be made sweet until the individual is made right with the individual. We read over in Second Corinthians 7.10, "...for godless sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of this world worketh death." The thing is that repentance today is something that, well, great many things it means shedding a few tears and then go merrily on your way. It's more than that. It's making things right. It's restitution also, making it right with the individual that's been injured. It's one thing to confess your sin. Our Lord said, if you remember that your brother's got something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and you go and make the thing right with the brother. The thing is that this is all important today. This idea you shed a few tears and that's it, down on the rug for a little while, then get up and everything is right. It's more than that, friends. It's making things right. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world, it worketh death. Just to shed the tears is just the sorrow of the world. It works death. It's meaningless. My dad used to tell about a little boat on the Mississippi River, and it had a little bitty boiler and a great big whistle. And when that boat was going upstream and it blew the whistle, well, it just couldn't go upstream and blow the whistle at the same time. It started drifting back down, so it just couldn't blow the whistle going upstream at all. Now, there are a lot of people like that today. Their repentance is the blowing of the whistle. They shed tears in profusion, but that's all. There's no going on with God. There's no turning from the sin and turning to God. Repentance is that. And that's what we have, restitution here. And then we have, from verses 11 through 31, the jealousy offering. And there's a great spiritual teaching here 
and I'm not able to plumb the depths of it, but let me read some of these verses. Verse 11, "...and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled, or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled. That is, I would say, if she had a child. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest. He shall bring her offering for her, and so on. And then you drop down here, though a test is made, if there was some question about her. And in verse 19, "...and the priest shall charge her by an oath, and say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse." And she was required to drink this water that, believe me, I'm of the opinion that it had a tremendous psychological effect upon a person, and especially if they were guilty. And that was the test that was made. Now, let me look at that for just a moment. Why isn't the man mentioned here? Well, there seems to be no suspicion of the man, but the suspicion is of the wife. And I want to say this to you, the Bible does not teach a double standard at all. The husband here could be a suspicious husband. Could a husband be guilty? Of course he could. But this is a figure of something. And you'll find out, well, we've already seen it back in Leviticus. We'll see it again in Deuteronomy that if a man or woman were taken in adultery, then both of them were to be stoned to death. There's no double standard in the Bible, but this is a picture here. It's a figure of Christ and the church. Now, there's no suspicion of Christ, but there is of the church, I can assure you. I think I know the church pretty well, and believe me, it's really under suspicion. And somebody says, but this is a jealousy offering. It says, sure is. Well, do you believe God's a jealous God? He says, I'm a jealous God. Well, someone's going to come along and say, you mean to tell me God is jealous? Yes, God's jealous. I don't mean with a low human jealousy like the jealousy of Othello when he was agged on by Iago, but I mean jealousy of the one that you love. When I hear a wife say today, well, you know, my husband is not jealous of me. My friend, if that is your state, dear lady, don't mention it because if your husband is not jealous of you, it's because he doesn't love you, or maybe it's because he has no reason to be jealous of you. I don't think I would mention it if I were you. If a man really loves a woman, he's jealous of her. And the same thing would be true of a woman loving a man. And the thing is true of God. God loves us. And he says, I'm a jealous God. And he doesn't want us to give our time and affection to the things of the world. Now, the figure can be carried out. The wife here, if she's innocent, she was exonerated. Actually, this law protected her from a jealous husband. And this, therefore, worked in her behalf in a very wonderful way. Now, I'm not going to read all of that, but I say there are great spiritual lessons there 
for you and me in this day in which we live. And friends, it does reveal that the Word of God is very clear on this matter of fidelity to the marriage vow. Today we're seeing a great breakdown of that, and it's becoming an accepted thing today that the marriage vow is not to be taken seriously but lightly, and God will hold you to it. I can assure you that. And a great deal of the problems of this world today are being caused in the home. That is the place where our problems are being made today. They're being made in the home, and they're being made by those who are treating lightly the marriage vow. God cannot, nor will he bless a nation.